Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to my 70s TV childhood. The best place in podcast land for harking back to what it was like to grow up in 1970s Britain and the central part that television played in our and our family's lives back then. Now, before we get into this week's reminiscences, we've got some more good news to share with you. Not only are we continuing to celebrate our third birthday, but we've also been shortlisted for the Best Film and TV Podcast Award at the UK Independent Podcast Awards for 2023, the winners of which are to be announced at a glittering awards ceremony in London at the end of October. I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners for helping to make this happen. Your support, simply by listening, engaging with us via email and social media, and by sharing the podcast with your friends, has led to this recognition, and I do hope you'll be keeping your fingers crossed for us at the awards. As always, you can share your thoughts with us via our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, leave comments on social media, or you can email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. We love to hear from you, and it means so much to hear how the podcast has brought back memories for our listeners. I also hope you're enjoying our new fortnightly quiz. I've had lots of feedback, including roughly similar amounts of listeners who complain that the questions are too easy or complain that they're too difficult, so it sounds like we're getting it about right. If you haven't tried it yet, give it a go, and let me know what you think. Now, the time of recording this episode, I've just got back from my summer holidays, and I'm feeling really quite relaxed. A bit of time away from it all, lying in the sun, eating and drinking something a bit different, and generally relaxing, is great for us all, and I always relish the chance to switch off and clear my mind. One of the biggest things I enjoy is taking a break from the daily pressures of work and of doing normal household things like taking out the bins or doing the washing or preparing meals. But like many things, I think there's been a change to our holiday behaviours and it's not quite as relaxing and away from it all as it used to be. When I was younger, and especially as a child, when we went on holiday we were cut off from normal life. No one expected to see or hear from you for however long you were away. If people did what we never did as a family and actually went abroad for their holidays, they might as well be on another planet. Can you remember the thought of making a phone call from overseas was absolutely unthinkable to most British people? Do you know how much it costs to ring home from here? Etc, etc. Rather sadly, it's not like that today. Technology now means that we're always available, always in contact, and, if we choose always able to keep in touch with family, friends and the workplace. I think it's a bit sad, but I'm as guilty as most people in using my phone on holiday to check the football scores, to play Wordle or swap messages with my friends. I try not to do any work while I'm away, and I am sensitive to my wife and fellow tourists that they're probably after a break from technology too. Uh, Unlike the woman on the sun loungers near us last week who spent 10 minutes doing a video call with her several grandchildren at full volume, so we all knew how little Joshua was doing on his first day at school. How different it was in the 1970s, when we weren't bothered by technology. Or were we? Looking back, I remember that we were sort of obsessed with science and technology, but in a slightly different way. Unlike the doom and gloom we sometimes associate with innovation and science today, 
if I see another article or hear another feature telling me that AI is going to take all of our jobs and ultimately take over the world, I think I'll just give in and wait for the machines to take over. Although I suppose I have seen Terminator, so I know where all of this ends. Anyway, I remember as a child that advances in science and technology were, like the obsession with space travel and exploration, seen as opportunities for the improvement and advancement of the human race. And this was shown to its greatest effect in one of the BBC's longest-running and most popular science-related shows. Tomorrow's World began in 1965 and ran for an incredible 38 years, but really had its heyday and golden years in the 1970s and early 1980s. It also had that fantastic theme tune by the great John Dankworth and a live broadcast slot on the BBC before Top of the Pops, thus ensuring lots of viewers, often more than 10 million per episode. Now, I'm not especially scientific and didn't do many science subjects at school, but I do remember being transfixed by Tomorrow's World and some of the incredible things that featured on the show. Why it was so memorable was, I think, that it showed a glimpse into the future which fired my imagination so I could see how these remarkable inventions and scientific developments would work in the future. I think, as well, that the range of the presenters the show had generally managed to present these amazing things in the show in a down-to-earth, non-patronising sort of way. The original lone presenter of the show was Raymond Baxter, a smooth, suave, sophisticated former wartime fighter pilot who looked like he'd stepped from the pages of a James Bond novel and spoke to us like a group of respectful schoolchildren. After a few years, he was joined by others, initially all men, who included James Burke, who many of us knew as the BBC's science correspondent on John Craven's Newsround, and Michael Rodd, known to most children from his role as quizmaster on Screen Test. As the 70s went on, the number and range of presenters increased to include the likes of William Woolard, Kieran Prenderville, and a whole range of gasp, shock, horror female presenters, most notably Judith Han, who sat as a main presenter alongside Baxter, Rod and the others. In fact, the original absence of female presenters was more than compensated for during the 1970s, with the likes of Danai Brooke, Hilary Henson, Cynthia Page and Sue Ingle brave the scientific front line. The show also featured Anna Ford as a presenter between 1976 and 1978. I have to say I don't remember her being on it, but well done for the producers for making sure that the traditionally male-dominated science world was presented to the great British public by some women. If you don't remember the show, then you might be thinking that it sounds a bit dull. Why would science be interesting? Well, it came from the style and scripting of how the various amazing things were presented and, as I mentioned earlier, the enthusiasm of an engaging way the presenters went about their business. It was also a very brave approach. Why brave, you ask? Well, I think it was brave on two counts. Firstly, as the show was presented live, lots of the demonstrations of new devices and technologies didn't go as planned, leading to unexpected and often hilarious results. In fact, Kieran Prenderville became known for his regular statements, which were along the lines of, uh, sorry, uh, didn't go like that in rehearsals. And incidentally, he was also the presenter who infamously introduced Britain to the compact disc in 1981 by 
scratching it with a stone and then showing the CD playing perfectly on the show. If only that had been the truth. And that leads me nicely on to the second reason the show was brave. As the various predictions were made about how the future might look, time was going on and very quickly these predictions could be shown to be incredibly prescient or, well, let's face it, completely wrong. So how did they do? I've been looking back at the archives and it's really quite amazing what was on the show. In 1971, an inventor called Clive Sinclair made an appearance to reveal his new invention, the Sinclair Executive, a revolutionary device which allowed you to add up numbers and it fitted in your pocket. The Pocket Calculator, much loved and loathed in equal measure by future O-level students, went on to revolutionise the way maths was taught in schools. It's hard to remember that before then you had to use slide rules and there were large desk-bound adding machines in offices or simply just pen and paper and ledgers to add things up. A truly revolutionary device. Sir Clive, as he later became, appeared many times on the programme with things like his ZX80, ZX81 and ZX Spectrum home computers, which I'm sure lots of you will have had and do remember. But also... Uh, He appeared with a few failures like the Pocket TV and, in the 80s, the infamous C5 electric vehicle, which, rather sadly, was such a commercial disaster that Sinclair had to sell most of his UK companies as a result. But his appearances on the show were typical of the sort of British innovation, slightly eccentric inventors, but the entrepreneurial drive which viewers loved. The show was also good at anticipating the future and dramatising what these new innovations would feel like. For example, in 1971, William Woolard looked forward to a new age of travel to Europe. By 1980, they'll have half-mile long trains leaving London Central every hour on the hour and thundering through the tunnel at up to 200 miles an hour, cutting down the travelling time to Brussels and Paris, for example, to about two and a half hours. Well, as we now know, the tunnel didn't open until 1994, a mere 14 years after the show's prediction. So what else was there? Here's an extract from 1971, when Michael Rott is struggling to find his way driving through an unfamiliar town. Lost. Driving in a strange town with an address but no map. Sooner or later, it's a pedestrian who helps out. Straight round the corner and up the road in the other side of this one. But pedestrians naturally think in terms of walking. All too often, the driver meets a wall of signs forcing him to go in quite the wrong direction. So, ask again. I've heard of it, but uh, I couldn't tell you how to get there. Fifty yards, turn right at T-junction. 175 yards, turn left at crossroads. 200 yards, straight on at traffic lights. Now that's what I call a really good navigator. Clear, precise instruction given in plenty of time for me to position myself in the road so that I can negotiate the hazard and change of direction with the utmost convenience. Yet here I am, completely alone in the car, and at the same time in the very best of hands. My navigator is this pre-recorded cassette of tape. On it are all the instructions I need to find my way around this route, and if I ever use a different route, I simply use a different cassette. Most of the time, the playing unit is switched off. It's only switched on to relay the instructions to me. And those times are dictated by this control unit, which is mounted underneath the dashboard. On the end of each instruction is recorded a bleep, and it's the precise length of this bleep which tells the control unit how far the car has to travel before the next instructions are due. The cassette player is connected to the control unit here. 
Here, the control unit is connected to the car myelometer, and as my road wheels rotate, taking me forward, this wheel on the control unit rotates. Now, its revs are counted, and when that count corresponds with the information stored here from the bleep at the end of the last instruction, the next instruction is given. Now, this unit will work with any make of car. All it needs to know to make sure it keeps me on the right road is the size of tire that I'm using, and I can give it that information by clipping in the appropriate circuit board. Well, that was sort of anticipating the sat-nav we know and love today, but without the vital component of um, satellite technology. So, just by clipping in the right type of circuit board, and by measuring how far your wheels turn, the cassette will tell you where to go. Hmm, not sure about that one. 1972 saw the show feature the invention of the liquid crystal diode, or LCD as we know it, which ushered in the age of the digital watch. Although we did have LED digital watches. I got one for, I think it was my 10th birthday. Do you remember, you had to press a button and the time lit up on the watch in bright red figures. Mine was a Timex and I loved it to begin with as I kept pressing the button and also showing my friends not only the time but also the date in red lights. Very, very exciting. However, the batteries didn't last very long and I remember being less than impressed in H. Samuel when the assistant told me that I shouldn't be looking at the watch more than three times a day otherwise the batteries wouldn't last. What use was that? Or do you think he wasn't being entirely truthful with me? I guess we'll never know. And how about this one? In 1976, Judith Han introduces to a new musical instrument, the Kaleidophon, which was made from plastic piping and a few other bits and pieces. And this was going to be the future of music. It's the mixed marriage between a violin and a plastic drain pipe. And it's a lot more subtle than any keyboard. Well, you can glide, glissando, you can bend notes, vibrato, all very directly, just with your fingers. With the help of this little switch, it has a repeater action. This controls the speed of the thing. Of course, uh, very fast chromatic runs. No problem whatsoever. Well, obviously, it didn't make it very far, as I've never heard of it since. I also remember a really bizarre one from, I guess, the mid-1970s, which introduced the idea of the floating bicycle, whose inventor was convinced that everybody in London would eventually commute by riding this strange contraption up and down the Thames, thus bringing an end to traffic jams in the capital. Hmm. I'm no mystic Meg myself, but even as a small child, I thought that was ludicrous. I also remember there was lots of coverage of space. As I mentioned previously on the podcast, space was huge in the 1970s, especially in my Brook Bond Race into Space T-car collection. So the features on the Voyager probes being sent into deep space and the Viking spacecraft heading to Mars grabbed my attention and fired up my imagination. But there were also lots of examples of dreams becoming reality on the show. Like in this excerpt from 1976, where the anticipation of a new supersonic passenger aircraft was clear from Raymond Baxter, who was lucky enough to take a test flight on Concorde. Probably the only unusual experience felt by the contact passenger on his first flight is the enormous accelerations. When the two-stage reheat comes in, 
when one leaves the realms of conventional flight. It's exactly like putting one's foot down in a highly tuned sports car. That, remember, when we are accelerating beyond the top speed of, say, a 747 Jumbo or a TriStar. Now, the outside air temperature is minus 61 degrees, but the temperature of the skin of the aeroplane, warmed by this colossal friction from the rush of air, is 108 degrees. Indeed, this window is quite warm to the touch. The fuselage is designed to take up the expansion caused thereby. In fact, at these temperatures, the whole aeroplane grows by about one foot. And under the cabin floor here, at about three-foot intervals, expansion panels are built in, exactly as they are on any big bridge, and precisely for the same goals. And that's just a glimpse of the sort of technical problems which you come up against if you start to design an aircraft as new and different as Concorde. There was also a common theme of grand projects, including Concorde, to transform the future, which were held back by the harsh realities of a country in economic decline. Similar concerns were raised about the UK's failure to build more nuclear power stations, to invest in wave power, and the huge overspends and delays to new transport infrastructure, most notably the Newcastle Metro, which took 10 years to complete and was way, way over budget. But it wasn't all bad news. Judith Ann showed us a view of the future in the late 1970s. It's not long to that landmark year, 1984. But did George Orwell get his predictions right? Fortunately, only in one area. Telecommunications have intruded into our lives, but not for political purposes like Orwell's telescreen. And ironically, the ingredients aren't futuristic technological wonders. They're basically just our old friends. The telephone and the television, linking with a computer database. Although this rather futuristic TV isn't typical at the moment. Prestel, you may remember from our reports, was pioneered by the post office in the early 70s. And unlike supersonic speed and gas-cooled reactors, this is a breakthrough that will affect all our everyday lives. You can already use it to do your shopping. Now, a list of wines to stock up again after Christmas. Now, I don't fancy the first type. I'd like some Chateau Talbot. So, let me see. I'll have two cases of that. Now, I can put in a credit card, pay for it, and the orders are on the way. This is the more normal size of set. And it, at the moment, it's telling me where to take my children this holiday. That looks like games that you can play with children. Yes, that's right. And we'll have some sport. Just three of 100,000 different pages of information. Now, it may look just like any other computer showing its paces, but it is quite different. Because up till now, computers have traditionally been remote, expensive machines aimed at specialists. And they only affect us when they send bills or lose our road fund tax. But the revolutionary thing about Prestel is that in your home or your office, computers join the mass communication market for the first time. Sitting at home, you can send information like this to head office. And you can keep a copy of it. There it is your own files. It should have a bright future once enough sets are available. If you're one of the 400 people who have sets at home, you're one of only 400 in the whole world. Prestel will only lead in this field if more sets become available, and then we've got to buy them. Shopping from home, playing video games via computers, 
that'll never catch on. So what inventions do you remember from tomorrow's world? Strangely, one of the ones I remember most clearly was actually pretty simple. Michael Rod showed us a new way for controlling traffic lights by burying sensors in the road ahead of the traffic lights. Before then, they were generally controlled by timers in control units. I thought that was just fabulous. How simple and how clever. Typical of so many things featured on the show that we now take for granted. Let us know on our blog or email if there are any ideas or any inventions that you were blown away by as a child from Tomorrow's World. So thank you, Tomorrow's World, for making us excited about science and technology, for showing us in a gentle way what our futures might hold. I'll leave you with Michael Rodd in an excerpt from 1979. After listening to this, I shouldn't have been surprised by the technology-related interruptions to our recent holiday. The future was clear for everyone to see. The mobile unit I was using is no ordinary radio phone. This device is a prototype, a prototype whose trials are being carried out strictly governed by Home Office regulations. At the moment in the UK, approved mobile phones are really little more than transmitter receivers which put the caller in touch with a post office operator who dials up the number you want and then connects your remote radio extension with the rest of the telephone network. Here is a device which allows you to dial yourself. And that's quite an achievement because it's one thing to transmit a conversation. It's another to transmit accurate digital information. Now, an extension at the Research Institute in Chelmsford which has perfected this technique. On the other end of this should be Liz Charnock. Hello, Liz Charnock. <laughs> Hello, Liz. That's a relief to hear your voice. I'm in Danbury Park now. You know the area better than I do. How far am I away from you at the moment? You're about seven miles away, Mike. We're in Chelmsford here at the uh, Chalmer Institute. I'm in my little office in the middle of the bunker. Thank you very much for taking part in this experiment, uh, which was actually happening in real time. We didn't cheat this one, did we? Thank you for your help. Who on earth would want to call somebody and tell them where they are? For example, on the train or on holiday. Can't see that one catching on. Thanks for listening and join me again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.